This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. Welcome to the Austin Chronicle Show. My name's Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. Well, the temperatures keep jumping from 90 to 70 and back again. We're being invaded by crickets, and the land development code debate has come back from the dead. It's just another week in Austin, Texas. Last week, the city released the first draft of a new land development code revision, its first attempt since Mayor Adler pulled the plug on previous effort code next in August of 2018. Code Next was a famously bedeviled process. It went through multiple drafts, and it prompted a lawsuit, a mayoral challenger for Adler, many, many op-eds, and so much hyperbole. So, will this next land use code process be any different? Here to answer that question, or at least take a first stab at it, is Austin Chronicle staff writer and City Hall reporter Austin Sanders. Hello, Austin. Hello, it's good to be here again. So, first things first, what are we calling this thing, and what exactly is it? Yeah, uh, I think... A lot of people at City Hall are really afraid of labeling it because of what happened with Code Next. So you just hear people call it the Land Development Code, LDC for short. Okay. And we're going to call it LDC here because otherwise it's a real mouthful. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what exactly is this? So basically what a Land Development Code is, is it uh, determines what kind of buildings can be built in different parts of the city. Uh, So it It has different zoning restrictions, um, determining what kind of houses, commercial buildings, uh, in retail stores, um, just different service centers, just different things like that. Basically, um, the city does not have enough housing units to support the amount of population growth um, it's experienced in recent decades. Uh, So the broad goal, the broad goals of the Land Development Code rewrite is to uh, grow the number of housing units, um, uh, you know, that are available to uh, people in Austin. Um, And the way that the city is trying to do that is to make it easier to build all types of housing in all parts uh, of the city. Uh, And another key goal is to try and connect people to uh, alternate forms of transportation other than uh, driving cars around. Um, So that is kind of the underlying goal of the entire process. Uh, And thus far, it seems like um, staffers, city council members, advocacy groups all agree that, if nothing else, the code rewrite will um, grow the number of housing units. Um, The question then is whether or not those will be affordable uh, to most people in Austin. It's a very hot real estate market. uh, And so there's fear that um, uh, developers will come in and just Um, you know, build expensive structures and they'll be uh, priced out uh, uh, or unavailable to most people in the city. Uh, But the city uh, hopes to combat that through in the code through uh, what are called density bonus programs. And essentially they try to incentivize developers into, uh, um, you know, building or reserving some 
income restricted units that are affordable to more people um, in exchange for uh, increased building heights and um, no parking requirements uh, or just different things that are uh, enticing to developers. And Austin's uh, code has not been updated since 1984. Um, so for a lot of um, City Hall observers, it's it's been long overdue, uh, which is why the city started this process in 2012. Um, and they are, many of them are anxious to uh, have this done. For sure. Mm -hmm. Obviously, the city has changed dramatically since the 80s. Um, so they tried it first with Code Next and didn't work. They threw it out, but they didn't actually throw it out, right? Yeah, no. Uh, uh, staff and consultants will say that, you know, the work that was done on Code Next has really informed this next process. Uh, and in fact, a critical component to this, you know, second attempt at the code rewrites. Um, in May, uh, city manager Spencer Cronk, he uh, posed basically this policy questionnaire to the city council uh, where he asked members to debate five key uh, policy questions about, you know, they, they were things that were really controversial within Code Next, uh, parking requirements, um, you know, how um, apartment buildings and townhomes should uh, interact with single family family homes, just different things like that. Um, and the way that those questions were framed, the answers were basically, should we leave it as the status quo in the current code? Um, should we do something similar to draft three of code next? Or should we go further uh, than uh, draft three of code next? So those questions really gave a lot of valuable direction uh, to city staff. And most of it was based off of uh, the council's direction was based off of what had already been completed, uh, the work that had been completed in code next. So I know you've only had a week with this this first draft, but what are your what are your initial takeaways from it? Uh, well, you're, you're kind of hearing the same tension points um, that uh, existed within Code Next. Um, uh, the, the biggest, probably controversial area are what referred to as transition zones or transition areas. Um, and basically what those are is uh, they are these sort of buffer zones in between um, neighborhoods that consist of mostly single family homes uh, and the higher density, uh, big high rise developments, uh, apartment complexes, condos, things like that. So within transition zones, you'll see uh, what city planners refer to as missing middle housing. Um, and those include things like uh, townhomes and duplexes and um, uh, smaller multiplexes. So um, sort of what the city is calling house scale structures. So they're intended to look more like houses uh, to fit into neighborhoods more. And so those again, those transition zones are buffers between the single family homes and the higher density neighborhoods. And those have always been controversial because um, neighborhood uh, uh, preservationists, they fear that uh, bringing in more people into their neighborhood will um, cause more traffic, more noise pollution, uh, just different things um, of, of that nature. Um, and so where those areas are mapped throughout the city um, has always been controversial, and it continues to be that way um, uh, uh, in this next version of, of the code. Mm -hmm. You're right. So crudely put, is it is it safe to describe the two opposing camps as either you're a preservationist or you're an urbanist? 
Yeah, I think that's probably the simplest lens to look through it. Um, I, I think a, a lot of people at City Hall are trying to get away from those those that that framing because mm-hmm. it can kind of uh, it, it's sort of a tribalist uh, you know way it kind of uh, fosters competition and what the city really wants to do is to make those two camps um, uh, compatible and one way they've done that is they've introduced uh, something that was not in Code Next um, but is in this new draft called the Preservation Incentive uh, and essentially it's an attempt to um, incentivize developers into preserving um, existing aging uh, homes throughout the city. So basically, um, if a city is, if a, a structure is, is at, at least 30 years old um, and a developer buys a lot and they keep that structure, um, they can get um, additional allowances, like maybe they can build their uh, building higher or they can have fewer parking uh, spaces, just different things like that to kind of preserve some of those older buildings that uh, people in neighborhoods feel give um, their areas um, unique character uh, for one, but also preserve affordability uh, because aging uh, buildings, they sort of naturally uh, become more affordable as new housing stock comes online. So this is incredibly dense stuff, and it's got its own very specific, peculiar jargon. You know, we're looking at residential house scale zones and Main Street zones and regional center zones. And within each of these zones, there's then additionally R1 and R2. And how do you think the city is doing uh, or is planning to do in terms of, of talking to the citizenry about this, of making it understandable, easily palatable, and then getting feedback from them? Yeah, and that was another big complaint about Code Next. It was just very dense and wa- wonky and kind of an unusable document for, for most people who are not really entrenched in this type of policy. Um, I think it remains to be seen how usable the document is. This one, like Code Next, is also over a 1000 pages in length so it's extremely dense material and you've read them all right oh yeah of course (laughs) yeah uh over the weekend very nice um one thing that the city uh has done differently is they have a really useful mapping tool uh, where anyone can go online put in any address and it pulls up a side-by-side uh comparison where you can look at uh the uh old map the old code versus what zoning would look like um under the uh uh the new map and the new code. And when you look at the new code, it'll give you the designation of what is allowed to be built in that area. Then you can look at the actual code text to see what that means. Does it mean a mid-rise apartment? Does it mean a duplex? Does it mean a single family home? Just uh, to, to answer those questions. So Another way the city is going to kind of make this thing more visual and and realized for people is um, they're going to begin holding uh, uh, public testing sessions in the future. Uh, And what those entail is uh, people will be able to uh, talk to staffers in person and look at real world scenarios. So they'll look at a a lot um, in the city uh, that's sort of uh, theoretical, but it'll be a under a real zoning code and um, the staffer will be able to walk them through what kind of structure will be able to build be built on that lot so people will be able to actually visualize what changes could be coming to their neighborhood which mm-hmm. I think once people do that it'll really help um, uh, uh, you know people understand um, what the new code and map will mean if approved 
Well, we're at the beginning of this process. Um, listeners, if you go on to austinchronicle.com, uh, you can find Austin's massive story this week. We've got 4,000 words just in the main feature alone about this. And then we also have a series of links. You know, We've got the links to the mapping uh, tool that you just described so you can figure out what's happening in your own neighborhood. You can also find the schedule, the meeting schedule. So there's a lot to unpack here, and we're going to keep talking about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but for now, we're going to switch over to the other big thing happening. Uh, happening in City Hall right now. We tape on Thursdays, and as we were going into taping today, uh, there was a big development. Uh, You want to talk about that? Yeah, so um, the city uh, recently hired the first ever homeless strategy officer. Um, Her name is Lori uh, Pompeo Harris, and essentially she was charged with coordinating all of the city, uh, uh, the the organization's efforts to um, uh, confront homelessness and to, you know, work on implementing those strategies to help people find shelter and then um, survive while they're in those circumstances and then eventually exit homelessness to uh, permanent housing. Uh, But today she announced that she will be stepping down as a full-time employee and shifting to a consultant role. So she'll still be uh, helping to guide the city's staff and policymakers, but not in a full-time capacity. Um, So this is a big change because a lot of people on the council were really looking to to um, uh, uh, Ms. Harris to provide a lot of leadership uh, for the city uh, to guide the strategy, which is still under development and which still needs to be implemented uh, in many ways. So um, it's unclear at this point what that means for this strategy uh, and how it will be affected. Um, uh, the city, of course, uh, says they're moving forward and it's not going to slow the process down any, uh, but she was set to play a critical component and with her scaling back her time committed to that, it's uh, it'll be interesting to see what that means practically. Well, and tempers are already flaring and have been for a long time now about this issue. And it's escalated uh, in recent weeks because the governor has decided to step in and give his opinion about the situation. Yeah. So that uh, was another big development um, that happened today. So um, last week, the governor had sent a letter to uh, the mayor and city council, essentially threatening um, state intervention if um, if, if the city doesn't do more to address uh, the homelessness problem, the, the governor didn't prescribe any or request any uh, specific policies or actions, but uh, it was definitely um, a threatening letter that I think played well uh, with his Republican base. Uh, and then today, uh, on Thursday, he sent a follow-up letter uh, to the mayor uh, requesting specifically that the city council reinstitute the uh, public camping ban, which they um, uh, rescinded in uh, June um, earlier this summer. Uh, so it's that was part of the decriminalization. Exactly. Of yeah, that's something we had talked about previously. Uh, basically, they uh, loosen restrictions uh, that uh, that were you know in place on people sitting, uh, lying, or camping uh, in public. There are still places. Uh, where people are not allowed to camp, uh, private businesses or, or residences, uh, public parks, um, uh, other governmental uh, buildings. Um, but, you know, by and large, uh, the camping restriction was rescinded. Um, and it's been a really, uh, you know, uh, it's a big, it's been a big, uh, point for the Republican Party in the county. Uh, they've been attacking the city for that, and now it's worked its way up to uh, state leadership. And um, 
the governor has essentially given the city until November 1st uh, to um, reinstate this ban before he says he'll send in uh, state agencies to uh, take unspecified action uh, aimed at solving the problem for the city. Sure. It's the unspecified part that I think has a lot of... Yeah, he's, he's listed agencies, the Department of Public Safety, Health and Human Services uh, in the first letter. Uh, he mentioned uh, those agencies, but he, he was not really clear on what specifically they would do. Uh, but it, I think it was pretty clear that uh, it was meant to be a threat to the city mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, something that the mayor responded to um, as a request for help. So he says... You know, the governor, uh, to the state could do more to help all Texas cities, um, which many are confronting a, a similar problem. It's not just Austin. Um, and the state could be doing more uh, to help um, reduce homelessness. Uh, and so the mayor responded as uh, this was an invitation uh, to help the city. Uh, but so far, the governor has not really um identified any way he's willing to do that no and via twitter he is you know been soliciting people to send him photographs of homeless people uh he also i think you drew attention to the fact that he i I don't want to get this wrong i think but he referred to texas citizens and the homelessness yeah this was something that he had tweeted not long uh, earlier in the summer after the uh uh, camping ordinance was rescinded and it was just very subtle phrasing Uh, i don't remember the exact wording but it was something like we can find better solutions for um um for texans uh and our homeless citizens and it's just that's that subtle separation that othering that people experiencing homelessness are not texans they're those people that it Mm -hmm. It contributes to a stigma that um, is is really problematic um, within uh, that community and people, uh, the the organizations and professionals trying to help um, uh, that community, it it contributes to um, a misperception and uh, problems um, that, you know, make it harder to help people exit homelessness. Well, we have a November 1st deadline looming, and I'm sure there will be more twists and turns before then. So, Austin, thank you so much for coming in today. Yeah, thanks for having me. See you next time. All right. Uh, We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Austin Chronicle Show. We're in the studios of Co-op Community Radio, 91.7 FM in Austin, and live streaming through coop.org. I'm your host, Kim Jones, editor of the Austin Chronicle. However, I am abdicating all hosting responsibilities for the next 10 minutes and handing the mic over to our arts listings editor and noted comic and graphic novel enthusiast, Wayne Allen Brenner. That's right. She's abdicating. It's a Game of Thrones. I've won. I'm claiming that seat. (laughs) All right. Out of the way, you. This is Wayne Allen Brenner, and I'm here with Uncle Staple of Staple, the Independent Media Expo, coming back to Austin again now for its 15th year. It's going to be at the, uh, what is that called? The Millennium Youth Entertainment Complex. That is exactly what it's called, Wayne Allen Brenner. (laughs) Thank you, Uncle Staple. it's uh, this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. Eleven to six and noon to six. Fantastic. Yes. And filled with fans and for that matter. Um, tell me about mm-hmm. the guests and programming you have lined up for this year's staple. Yes, sir. Uh, we have a lot of wonderful guests lined up. Uh, Carrie Peach, who's the artist on the graphic novel a- adaptation of the Adventure Zone podcast. That's hey, she did the logo, right? The staple logo. She also logo. drew our staple gators, our mascots for this year. We get a different artist to interpret it every year, and she did some really Adorable sort of dragony staple gators enjoying their horde of comics. 
Uh, we have some uh, local notables, uh, Ngozu Kazu, who was on uh, here with me a few days ago, Lila Sturgis, who uh, is a local comics writer. Um, Lumberjanes, right? Lumberjanes. The award-winning Lumberjanes. Award, yes, she, she won some awards for that recently. Um, Evan Narcisse, who wrote uh, Rise of the Black Panther, also local. And then we have some more is, folks uh, from out of local? town. He's local? He's not flying in from Wakanda? Hmm. I don't know. Well, if he is, he's not telling me. Okay. Yeah, that, that would make sense guys. that he wouldn't, actually. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, Uncle Staple, it seems like Sorry. comics are being more accepted by the mainstream these days, whether <laughs> whether due to the mega bucks that are reaped by film adaptations of superhero comics or the sheer, uh, I guess you would say, power, the sheer power and brilliance of realist sequential art. Can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, I think uh, the movies are you know, being very popular have brought the idea into the mainstream so you know so maybe people are wandering into a comic book store who hadn't before that uh, hopefully at least but uh the, yeah to me it's it's a separate storytelling medium and i think uh you can tell any kind of story it doesn't have to be a superhero story with a comic book it could be journalistic it could be autobiographical uh it can be science fiction or horror or it can be superheroes but uh yeah i think i think the power of words and pictures together, as you so aptly put it, uh, holds its way over people. It does. It does. And unlike uh, so many other comic cons, you intentionally don't invite, like, you know, stars of TV shows to come and sign their autographs right. or whatever. Uncle Staple, why do you hate television? Well, it made me fat. No, <laughs> I, I, I love television. Um, I'm watching it right now. Uh, but... Seriously, uh, we started the show, as the whole idea behind the show was to connect an audience to people who are making their own comics or people who are making their own art um, who don't have a lot of opportunity to get that, you know, they've created the work, but there's not a lot of ways to access an appreciative audience ex beyond a show like this. Um, if you're doing the DIY, you know, if you're making the stuff yourself. So, you know, that's why we put it together. You know, and there's, you know, celebrities, they have their place. <laughs> I'll, I'll give them that. But, yeah, and also, you know, I don't want to deal with agents and stuff like that. That's yeah. A, that's a huge pain. But then some of the, the indie people you're working with are becoming sort of celebrities in their own right and, and spawning fandoms for their work. Like Ngozi's going to be there. And uh, uh, right. Ben Snakepit, is that right? He's going to be the, debuting a new comic? The the uh, the lovable Ben Snakepit yes. is debuting his new book, Dog Days of Snakepit. Dog and, Days of Snakepit. And what a punk rock DIY indie guy from the get-go. He's been publishing this autobiographical comic for 15, 16 years now mm -hmm. where he writes one comic strip a day, three-panel comic strip of what he did that day. Every single day? Every single day. Wow. For years and years and years. And he's collected that. Now he's being published by a publisher now. Uh, and this is his new collection that kind of talks about um, his beloved dog that passed away and his new dog that he got and, uh, you know, dealing with the emotions around that and stuff like that. So kind of like uh, Old Yeller, the continuing story. I think so. Okay. But, it's probably, but it's also funny. I'm well, sure. yeah, it's been snake fit. And, and who else? What else is uh, debuting 
at uh, uh, another at world premiere is the future without you which is a live comics performance that we're having uh folks fans who are of the intergalactic nemesis will be familiar with the format which is uh comic book art projected on the wall actors reading the parts that are going on uh another person doing live sound effects and creating live, live mixing live music. So it's a sort of multimedia experience. And uh, it's based on the uh, work of Ignatz Award-winning cartoonist Sophie Goldstein. Oh, wow. A friend of mine. And it's being uh, put together and produced by her husband, Carl Antonowitz, a, also a very good comic book artist in his own right. And, uh, yeah, I'm really excited to see it. Yeah, that sounds be great. Pretty great. Uh, what else is going on at Staple this weekend? Uh, well, we have a lot of well. There's a couple hundred artists and creators of uh, comic scenes, artscraft games, as I like to say. So, everything that you might desire. Uh, there's a panel about with some teachers who also make comics, mm-hmm. and they're going to talk about how they use comics in the classroom as an educational tool, or how they teach kids to make comics. Uh, we have a panel of Latinx comics creators, uh, they're going to be there. And we have a panel of uh, comic book professionals, some of which I've mentioned, uh, Evan Narcisse and Lila and Paul Benjamin, uh, some local writers, well-known folks. And uh, also uh, one one of our other guests, Rosemary Valero O'Connell, who's now won three Ignats and Harvey for her her book, uh, Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me. And uh, they're going to talk about how to break into comics. How okay. They'll have sort of diverse ways that they got into the industry, and they're going to discuss that. And uh, Noah Van Skyver, I see, he's also part of this list. That's right. Yeah, he's he's our uh, our other great uh, indie comics luminary that we have uh, flying in for for the show. Fantastic. Now, do, do these guys just uh, fly in of their own accord, or do you use the vast holdings of Staple Incorporated? Yeah, yeah. Well, we're sponsored by uh, the local comic book stores, Austin Books, Rose Gallery, and Dragon's Lair, and they uh, help us out by bringing the, the guests in. Oh, fantastic. I'm going to insert myself into this conversation. Um, Uncle Staple. Yes. I don't know anything about comic books, but I do know right. that origin stories are a big deal. And I'm curious about how this thing started, how you went from being presumably a guy who loves comic books to a guy who mm-hmm. puts on an annual event. Uh, essentially, it, uh, for several years ago, uh, before we started doing this, uh, my friend David Lamplew, uh, an artist, and I started making our own comics. And so, like, we sit down, we wrote a comic, we made it, we printed it. And it was like, okay, now what do we do with it? Now we have this thing in our, our garage or whatever. And uh, so we started looking around. Some of the local shops will take them on consignment. But then, again, the only way to reach an audience is to go to a convention and get a table and sell your comic. And at that time in 2004, before we even dreamed of this, uh, there was about five conventions in the United States that sort of focused on that DIY style of comic book making, uh, indie comics, what have you. So you had to fly there. You had to get a hotel you had, or hopefully find someone to put you up. You had to buy a table at the show. So you're not going to make anything selling your $2 handmade indie comic. It's a vacation, essentially. So, But we started meeting a lot of other people that were doing the same thing, some of them – 
have been doing it for years, like uh, people in Austin and people around Texas, and we're like, it just occurred to me, we have enough talent here to just have the show here. You know, here, bring bring the, uh, you know, why go somewhere when, when we're all here, let's just do it here. So we did. <laughs> and look yada, where you yada, are yada, now. We did it. <laughs> And if I was a, a first timer who was thinking about going, uh, what's the vibe? Am I going to be intimidated? Am I going to be open, welcomed with open arms? Uh, now, see, he has a vested interest, but let me tell you, as, as okay. somewhat of an outsider, no. It's the, it's Staple is like the opposite of that closed boys' room comic shop thing you might have seen in uh, on The Simpsons or something. The, the, the Was it the Android's Dungeon? Mm-hmm. No, it's not like that. It is so welcoming to all sorts of people, all ages. It's Yeah, it's a great place to spend a couple of hours and check things out. We get to understand the people that are there uh, making comics or making any kind of art is a very solitary pursuit. So you're there in your kitchen or your studio slaving away, and you don't get to talk to people. So then you get to come to an event like this, and there's all these people. You get to talk to them. So, yeah, you're going to be friendly, and you want them to see your work. So, they, uh, yeah, I've been told a lot, and I'm not just saying this, that Staple is one of the friendliest conventions and the convention circuit by, by the artists and by people that go. Fantastic. Well, Uncle Staple, thank you very much for being on the show with us. And back to you, Kim. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. I'm going to take the last word. Uh, just a final thank you to our guests this week, uh, Austin Sanders. Uh, Wayne Allenbrenner and Uncle Staple. And thanks also go to our engineer, Evan Hearn, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again here next week.